because Leeds have beaten a Brentford side who ended with nine men in the end. But Burnley are relegated. And scores! My word! As the Bruyne... It's the final game of the Premier League season wrapped up. Welcome back to the Football Die podcast. What a scintillating final day it was. Manchester City have been crowned Premier League champions once again, thwarting a Liverpool quadruple, which is music to my ears. But on an impartial note, what a thrilling final day it was for both spectators and for the fans of Manchester City, especially, who absolutely were reveling in the drama that was going on on the final day, which was absolutely insane. I've not seen a final day like this for a while, so plenty to talk about. Also, Burnley are relegated and Leeds escape, which is another bit of uh, twist in the final day, which we love to see here. Miles and David with me to talk through all of that, as well as the rest of the Premier League action. Um, not that there was much apart from those massive moments, but Miles, for you, first of all, titles wrapped up. Manchester City worthy champions once again. I mean, it's great to see it go to the final day, first of all, but what a way to finish. This was almost, almost like an Aguero-style finish, wasn't it, in some ways? <laughs> I thought Villa were going to spoil the party for them, to be honest. It was it was a brilliant game, definitely. But Man City got there in the end. I think you never really doubted that they would come away with a result in this one. And you probably expected Liverpool to do the same against Wolves, so they were going to need to. But then that tension just kept building and until the 74th minute it looked like all of a sudden the title might have gone a different way. So absolutely incredible for our last game of the season. Yeah, I was trying to figure out whether Liverpool were actually top at any point during the day and they weren't. But there's a point where Aston Villa obviously took a 2-0 lead at the Etihad, which was unreal to begin with. And Liverpool was still at 1-1 with Wolves. And if Liverpool had a score at that moment first, they'd have been top briefly, which might have swung it. But no, City went into overdrive and produced one of the most stunning comebacks I've seen. I don't think they come back from games very often, either City, do they? So what a way to pull it out of the bag. Dave, what are your thoughts on City's uh, City's comeback against Villa? Uh, it was a topsy-turvy game. Um, yeah, like you mentioned there, from 70 minutes on, onwards, that moment where Coutinho made it 2-0, it, it felt as though it wasn't going to happen for City. And... Even I'd say, sort of, from half to after half time, they didn't, they just weren't clicking into gear. They weren't really creating many opportunities. They were making careless passes. Um, Villa looked so dangerous on the break. Um, there were moments, or a couple of moments, where they could have made it 2 0 sooner than they did. Um, the on Watkins chance, which was onside, it was where he's played through. Um, Somehow didn't finish that opportunity. It's hard to say, obviously, what what could have could have happened. I mean, it could have spurred City into life sooner than it did when they obviously went two 0 down. Eventually, we don't know. They could have they could have gone on and you know made it two three nil, um, which it would have been difficult to see City coming back from that. But the way yeah. they came back um, was r ridiculous, really. And, for three goals in five minutes, it was. I think it was that substitution of um, the couple of substitutions that were made. Gundogan came on and Sterling. All of a sudden, they just seemed to have yeah. much better balance to them. Um, they were getting in those pockets. You, you saw a couple of the goals were 
we all, how many times have we seen City over the years have these tap-ins at the back post to have these the perfect position? City coming back from 2-0 down to make it 3-2, if there's any question marks about their temperament, it was answered pretty emphatically, I think, in the game. Uh, Miles, the tactical changes that Dave touched on were, were key, really, but also the change for Fernandinho to come off because he was struggling, wasn't he? And I know it was a sentimental yeah. inclusion for him in his final game, but he really struggled with with Watkins in particular. Any kind of pace thrown at him looked vulnerable. So fair play to Guardiola, really, for making the changes that he needed to make. Yeah, to be honest, as much as I agree with Dave in the changes about uh, Sterling and, and Gundogan bringing a different dimension to City's game, I actually agree. I think that the Fernandinho change was the most important. Uh, I think that first half, Watkins just had his number the physicality really struggled with that the pace of him the movement Fernandini is not a natural centre-back obviously he's dropped there deeper in his his latter career obviously to kind of fill a gap and in this game he just he just looked like someone who hadn't played a lot of football and he just didn't know how to keep yeah. up the other thing that I thought was really important was obviously that meant John Stones was playing fullback now yeah Think about the width that City bring when they have Carl Walker and Cancelo attacking as they invite the opposition's fullbacks forward. And we saw that work for Villa in the first half because obviously Luca Dean crosses in for Matty Cash to score mm -hmm. Villa's first goal. So not only were City's fullbacks not getting forward, it, it just allowed that space. Whereas when Zinchenko comes on, he's a very attacking fullback. It means Stones can slot in and try and match Watkins a bit more for pace, which worked to the majority of the game and then all of a sudden Cancelo and Zinchenko have got that space to move up the field which pushes Dean and, and Cash into areas they don't want to be at and look at Zinchenko's work on that left-hand side for yeah. which I can't remember which city goal it was might have been Rodri's and he beats Buendia so comfortably that's what City were lacking in the first half they just weren't being clinical enough to get the ball forward they looked like they were just nervous to be honest and they were playing out just just nullify any threat that Villa had and it didn't work so I thought that was a really important change in the game bringing Fernandinho yeah. off you think you, lost, you think you lost a bit of the threat when Coutinho came off definitely but to be honest I don't actually think we had that much of a threat in the first place in the second half that goal came out of nothing really Coutinho created it out of nothing it was absolutely fantastic that turn for a really nice finish too I don't think Villa were, were looking to create anything else and go for a third. I think they thought, well, let's just see what happens now. Let's ride this out. So whether that's the right decision or not, I don't think anything was going to stop Man City's attacking threat. I don't think it mattered what attacking threat Villa had on the pitch at that point. I think it was more about whether City were going to up their game because that's how good they are. Villa weren't expecting yeah. to give City a game and this is why. Oh, they absolutely played their part in the drama of the final day. Yeah, I think Wolves can be commended as well for the same in the Liverpool game. But I mean, when City did go 2-0 down, it was kind of, you could almost picture Man City doing something crazy like that because they do have moments, don't they? We're talking a small fraction of their time that they do have crazy moments like that. But even the choice to play Fernandinho at centre-back in a game like this and against a player like Watkins with his pace seemed a bit crazy. But yeah. the fact that he corrected it quite quickly... Um, is is you know it's fair play to Guardiola. He's he's been 
kind of slammed in the past for being stubborn with his tactics, but this was the right time, the right sort of people to put on. Gundogan as well was so influential. And I think he commented in um, in Match of the Day's analysis, he, he was on with Gary Lineker saying that he's the kind of player that knows how to time runs into the box. And he did that perfectly, didn't he? I thought Gundogan was an amazing addition to an already brilliant game. And if he leaves City, he leaves a lot behind, doesn't he? Like that kind of player is hard to replace, isn't he? Well, I think he had 100% pass completion once he came on. He had three shots and scored two of them. I think he won all his aerial duels. He just, when the rest of Man City looked a bit rocked, because obviously they didn't expect to find themselves in that position, he stayed strong. And that was a real testament to the kind of player he is. Let's not forget that towards the back end of last season, Gundogan was comfortably Man City's best player. And he's found his time a bit more limited this season with the advancement of Bernardo Silva and how good De Bruyne has been and Rodri coming into that midfield. And there is a lot of talk that he's going to move back to Germany this summer or potentially Arsenal, but I can't see that happening personally. But he's, he's no. probably just won Man City the title as well. So do you now look at him and think, well, maybe he should stay for next season? Because I think he's a quality midfielder, Gundogan. I think he's still quite underrated, to be honest, in the Premier League because his success mm. there has been fantastic. City have won four out of the last five titles and he's been a massive part of that. Yeah, he's, I think he's a victim of a bit of versatility as well because he can be so widely used across the pitch. And I mean, he's normally a bit deeper than what he played when he came on. But the fact that Pep pretty much gave him free reign to bomb forward into the box when needed paid off massively. He's got that intelligence as a player, hasn't he? And he had it at Dortmund as well. He was a a key player in their midfield. So if he was to go, yeah, um, a a strange one to leave City at this time. But I suppose every player in in City in a squad like theirs wants to be wanted by the coach. Mm -hmm. If he's not wanted now, then I don't know what he has to do, to be fair. He's got to go down in City folklore, really. But... I think Pep used the word legends as well for this team, saying that this kind of game has put them on a pedestal. Like you said, Miles, four titles out of the last five years. That's something to sit up and take note of, isn't it? They, they, they're really an impressive team. And I think the difference between them and Liverpool is just that they're so slick, so clinical. And the only question mark that people had was, could they come back from adversity like this? Have they got the bottle to come back from behind? And they don't usually. So to finish the season like this kind of answers that question as well. I think particularly when you consider how good this Liverpool side are. So they've won four of the last five titles against that kind of opposition that have run them close twice now. Within yeah. within a point, twice that is. That That's incredible. So that that longevity that Guardiola's created there and the, the depth that that squad has and the money it has, of course, is always going to feed into that. And obviously, they're such an odd club to follow with a very recent history. I think they've now won 16 trophies since the, the takeover. Mm. And obviously that's that's such a big percentage of their club history that it always leaves a bit of a sour taste in your mouth watching Man City win something. But I would have <laughs> rather have seen them win it than Liverpool at the weekend, to be fair. So yeah. it's what it is. Well, one point separates them in the end, Dave. Um that's probably indicative of where the two teams are. But the gap from Liverpool down to Chelsea is, is about 18 points or something like that. So, again, they're by far the top two teams in the country. How did Liverpool lose this title? Because they're on every other front, they've they've gone as far as they can. You know, in every competition, they've reached the final. They've won two so far. They're in the Champions League on Saturday, as we know. So, what did they miss in this title room? Um... 
from what I've seen, I think that Man City did gain more points from the from the big games against the big teams. Um, well, they didn't beat anyone in the top four, did they? No, this season. I think on I think on the back of it as well. If you think about the two fixtures that they had against each other, obviously the two two all draws. Yeah, Man City were the better team in both of those games, and were probably felt unfortunate really to have come out come away with just the point on the on the basis of those two games. Liverpool did have a couple of decisions that went that kind of went their way. So I think on in the long run of the season, I think Man City are the deserved of the two. Um, I think they fully deserved their their title win and. I mean, you've, you've, I think you've got to look at... One thing I will say about both teams is when they did have um, drop points, they always responded, and that's kind of the sign of champions. They're able to to recuperate from, you know, any sort of disappointment, and they've both done that over the course of the season. So either team would have been deserving of it, but I think fine margins, Man City were, were you know, worthy winners. Yeah, it's Go on. Sorry, just to add to what they were saying, it's funny because Liverpool, obviously, imperious in the second half of the season in particular. I think they're unbeaten in 19 or something like that since the turn of the year, which is just incredible. And actually, they've not done badly against the big sides, but they've played twice against City, Chelsea and Spurs, the other top four teams, and taken six points from them because they've drawn every single game in that sort of region. Yeah. Whereas Man City, yeah, they lost to Spurs but they took six points from just Chelsea. And when you're talking and competing at the top end of the league, you've got to take points from the teams around you as well as those below you. So, look, yeah. it's such a, a funny thing to pick on them for when really it came down to a point. And even the goal difference was really close until City blew a couple of teams away at the end of the season. But yeah, little moments I mean, could have that... made everything different. That Rodri handball <laughs> could have changed everything. I mean, Chelsea have proved to be a bit of a bogey team for Liverpool. I mean, even in the two cup games, they couldn't beat them over 90, 120 minutes, you know? Yeah. So, yeah. Um, I mean, that's probably be their shortcoming, really, that they've not been able to put away, you know, teams in, in the vital moments. Yeah. I think, well, I think with the small margins we were talking about, do you think maybe it was a the amount of games Liverpool played in the end, yeah. the semi-finals they had to play that were different, the finals they've had to play, and going to the, the full distance with both the finals they've played so far, maybe had a, a bit of a, a sway in the way things went in the, the closing stages of the season. Definitely that. And also, you have to remember that the goal-scoring form that Mo Salah was on in the first half of the season is what won him the golden boot. The second half, yeah. he slowed down a little bit, with still being a, a fantastic player, of course, but his goal was dried up slightly after AFCON. And they obviously had that spell where not only have they played as many games as it is physically possible to play in a league season this year, mm. they've also had two of their key players in in, a, in the final of a tournament in the middle of all of that. So it is hard for Liverpool really to even be competing at this level. And it's got to be a bit of a congratulations at the fact they even got this close when you consider it. But I think two key players really. Salah's goals obviously tailed off towards the end of the season and he's still... the has done well and obviously he's tied some for the golden boot. Also, Diogo Jota. I don't, yeah. Since Luis Diaz came in, Jota's kind of disappeared a little bit. As fantastic mm -hmm. as Diaz is, he's not scored the amount of goals that Jota was scoring at the start of the season. So that, yeah. that seems to be a bit of a change as well. When you look at the fact that City 
were behind Liverpool on goal difference for a while and then managed to overturn that and get ahead by quite some distance. Yeah, I think whatever happens with Liverpool in the Champions League, nobody will remember that they were on the cusp of a quadruple, will they? Because nobody remembers how close you got to winning something when you don't win it. Mm. Um, and as a lot of people have said, even if they win the treble of trophies but don't win the Premier League, it's not a genuine treble as well. So... There's a few kind of people saying that their season could be a write-off depending on what happens in the Champions League. I think that's really harsh because, like you said, against really demanding physical environment that they've been in to put themselves in that position, to even put themselves in that position, I think is worth commending. They've got such a talented team. I think the only thing they're missing on City is just that extra depth, isn't it, really? Like we talked about, those forward players aren't quite the same level as, as they need to be. The ones that City have got to rotate between. And the amount of goals they scored... But that one out and out striker Man City is, is unreal as well. And when you factor in there putting Erling Haaland into the mix next season, it does make you wonder what Liverpool now need to do in the transfer market to stay competitive. So, Dave, what do Liverpool need to do in the transfer market now? Um, I think they need to strengthen their midfield, um, for one. Um, there are rumours, apparently, they're interested in Tremini. Um Monaco, so if yeah. if they get him, that'll be a great sign. I think Real Madrid are interested I, I, in, from what I've seen of him. Yeah, from what I've seen of him, he's a great player. So yeah. if they manage him, I hope they don't personally. But <laughs> uh, in that case, I hope he goes to Real Madrid. But um, I feel like mid midfield is an area where they are they do need to kind of grow up a little bit. I think Henderson's not really performed the way he has in previous seasons. This season, obviously, he's not had quite as many minutes as he had. Um if they don't have Tiago available, they they do look sort of a little a little bit short of quality in those areas. Um we've seen bits and bobs from Navigator, but I still don't know if he's that player to really kind of um take them to that next level. So midfield, obviously in the forward positions, depending what happened with them there, obviously whether there's a lot of rumours about Mane potentially going to Bayern Munich, yeah. um, um Now that Real Madrid aren't getting Mbappe, it'd be interesting to see what happens with them if they go for Salah, potentially, because um, you know, they love a marquee signing. So it's, it's going to be interesting for sure. Um, but their, their squad as it is now, it's you know so strong in contrast to what it was four or five years ago. I mean, it's night yeah. and day, really. Um, even if they don't add a lot to this squad and go into next season, they will still be there competing with the manager that they've got. Um, so I, I, I'm, I wouldn't be too worried as a Liverpool fan. That's exactly what I was going to say. We can sit and ask these questions. What could Liverpool have done? What do they need to do to catch Man City? Nothing, really. It's boiled down to luck. There's not much to separate these two sides as is. And of course, we talk about that City are now strengthening. But what more can Liverpool really do? To be honest, the best thing they can do in the market is probably get a contract with Salah and Mane and not have AFCON next season. And then, and then, and then maybe they will keep up. It's, it's such yeah. a harsh reality. I don't think they even necessarily need to strengthen the midfield that much. Maybe depth-wise they do. Because... Thiago, Fabinho and Keita look like a good midfield three. And Canate obviously came in at centre-back towards the end of the season and he looked like he was starting to settle in a little bit. So really, the only thing they can do is try and add depth to what they've got just because that's what mm. City have done. 
I don't know if adding depth either is the the solution. What they need is a genuine megastar to prove that they can level up because Erling Haaland undoubtedly levels Man City up, I think, makes them a much better attacking team. Whether that's possible, we'll see. But, um, I mean, we said the same about Lukaku, really, so I'll wait and see how that pans out. But if they're going to sign a midfielder, why not go for a Jude Bellingham? Do you know what I mean? Like somebody who's literally going to be world-class very soon. Well, they want Bellingham, definitely. There's been reports of that already. But Bellingham's already confirmed that he wants to be at Dortmund next season. And you can't mm. see Dortmund letting Bellingham go in a summer they've lost Haaland because that's just not their model. It's only for one player at a time. So they won't get Bellingham for this season. Definitely not. I'd be really I mean, I'll go full now if they do, but I'm I'm quite confident of that. Um I don't I mean, really know who's available for them. I think they're probably in a weird Maybe, but is he really that much better than what they've already got? He's a great midfielder, but I don't know if he necessarily... Does he start every game for Liverpool? Depends how quickly he beds in, I guess, and how much of an impact he makes. Yeah. But he's the kind of player I think they will probably look at as opposed to someone like Bellingham. Even if Bellingham was available, I struggle to yeah. see how they would afford to pay his wages because he'd probably command a pretty decent fee as well. So... Mm. He's going to a, a mega club. And I, at the minute, I don't think you consider Liverpool to be a mega club quite yet because financially they haven't got the same muscle. And I guess yeah. that's part of the reason why they're more popular than Man City, for example, because yeah. they, they've they earned their success in the traditional way. You know, they've, yeah. they've built gradually. They're scouted really smartly. Yeah. And Man City have left £100 million man on the bench in their key game of the season because they can. So that's just the difference can between we- the two. Can we mention Grealish quickly just for the interview he did after the game? Like, I just look at you know, I'm a bit of a fanboy, but I thought he came across so brilliantly. And I actually thought the insight into him and his season was really interesting. He talked yeah. about how the pressure is so different at Man City that when he was at Villa, he felt like it was his job to take the ball forward and go towards goal. Whereas at City, he feels more like it's his job not to lose the ball because he's worried of what Guardiola will think. That's such an interesting point, really. And I like that he's honest enough to say that. I thought he came across brilliant. Yeah, he did. I think he will probably flourish more next season now he's figured out yeah. Guardiola's way of playing, won't he? And uh, probably get utilised a lot more. I think that the similar thing happened with uh, with Foden when he made the breakthrough. I think people were frustrated. He was frustrated that he didn't get more game time. And then out of nowhere, he just clicked and got it. I think uh, Grealish might be a, a similar kind of player, but we'll see. Yeah. But yeah, that's the title. We will probably wrap up the season in a bit more detail in a future pod. Definitely talk about the new misses that have happened throughout the season, our predictions and things like that. But for now, we'll talk about the relegation zone and the confirmation that Burnley are not going to be in the Premier League for the first time. And is it six seasons now? Yeah. Which is um, yes. it's weird to think because it feels like they've been around for a lot longer than six seasons. And I think that's probably testament to Sean Dyche's longevity, really. But Burnley down, Leeds are spared. What happened? Because it was in their hands. They had to win. Mm. You know, so why are Burnley down and Leeds on? Because that shouldn't have been the case, really. I didn't think it would be before the game. Again, against the Newcastle side that weren't playing for anything but pride as well. Yeah. Burnley. But again, it came down to fine margins. Only got a point against Aston Villa that could have been three if it weren't for Tyrone Mings diving across the line to block from Veghorst, which, to be honest, 
made me laugh a lot. Leeds fans absolutely hate Tyrone Mings for some reason. And when we, whenever we play Leeds, they go mental about him. And honestly, he kept them in the Premier League with that block. It's it's not even a joke. That That is as close as it was. And then again, Weghorst had that chance against Newcastle where he stretches for the ball and it just comes off his studs instead of his, his actual boot and goes slightly wide. And that's the margins. All of a sudden, mm. Burnley are down and Leeds have managed to snatch it. It's absolutely incredible. But what character Leeds showed in this game, and Rafinha in, in particular, yeah, what a player. Absolutely incredible, isn't it? Yeah. Well, that's the thing. You talk about fine margins. Dave, is it not simply a case of if they'd have kept Chris Wood and Sean Dyche, they'd have been safe? Is it more complex than that? I mean, hindsight is a wonderful thing, but we kind of, you know, there was a reaction after Deitch was, you know, given the boot and did they take something like eight points from three games or something like that, was it? Yeah, it was I think. a decent start, wasn't it? No, sorry. Eight points from four games, I think it was. Yeah. Um, and, yeah, they all of a sudden it kind of petered out. And we did mention, we have mentioned for the last two or three weeks with Burnley, it just seems as though they lost that momentum um, and really struggling. It was often, you know, they were probably, I wouldn't say unlucky against Villa because I thought Villa were probably the better team in that game. Um, but we've always questioned whether they had the quality in there. Yeah. They went out and obviously invested in January after getting rid of their, obviously, you know, their, their key striker, but it was too little too late, in my opinion. You've got to have sort of a bedding in for when you're bringing in, you know, those sort of players um, from different leagues as well. I think you need a pre-season behind you, and it was just an afterthought, in my opinion. Um, the the sacking of Deitch was just crazy, as we, we thought at the time. Mm. Um, and, you know, they've not... They've come out with nothing at the end of it, really. Um, Miles is not a fan of Sean Dyche, so I can see he disagrees no, I, with him. I really disagree, if I'm honest, because if you look, Burnley had one win by mid-February this season in the league. And Chris Wood wasn't exactly lighting it up for them either this season. They were in real, real trouble. They, they've mm. become better. They were, I think they were four points adrift when they sacked Dyche, and they've ended up missing out by, what, a point in the end? So yeah. they came closer than they would have, you could argue. I actually think that Mike Jackson did a much better job than Dyche did. And I actually really like Vekhorst. I just don't think... Well, I think Dave's right when he says he probably needed more time to bed in. They tried to yeah. add some quality when they brought in Maxwell Cornet, but one player is not enough. You can't bring one player in and expect him to completely change your team. And then I think the other thing that really let them down, and I hate to pick on someone individually, but... Dwight McNeil failed to get a goal or assist this season. And actually, he's probably their marquee player that you would have hung most of your hopes on in the attacking areas Great. after last season. That's that's really problematic. And they've managed to get themselves into this hole now where not only have they, they lost their place in the Premier League, they're going to lose most of their key players. You can't imagine Nick Pope hanging around. James Tarkovsky looks like he's about to sign for Villa because he's out of contract. Ben Mee's out of contract. Mm. I'd never, ever can see Maxwell Cornet staying next season. That'd be ridiculous if he plays championship football. And they now have to pay back $65 million as a loan yeah. because they've been relegated. So they find themselves in a financial hole and their playing staff's going to be completely stripped. 
And really, I think it boils down to one game. The, the Norwich game, they beat Everton, but like they got themselves out of trouble. And then yeah. they go and play Norwich, who are completely ashore. And they, they can't get the three points that they need. Now they find themselves in the championship and in, in turmoil, to be honest. Yeah. I mean, the table doesn't lie. We say that. And Leeds, in a similar way, had an awful spell, didn't they, during the season where they were shipping so many goals under Bielsa that he had to go. And it was such a, a stickler for his way of playing that Jesse Marsh has actually done a really good job of trying to change that really ingrained Bielsa mentality in that Leeds team. Because that must have been hard to shake off, Dave, because it was such an identifiable style for the players after, what, three, four years of Bielsa being there that for Marsh to suddenly try and inject some enthusiasm, first of all, because Bielsa didn't even speak the language, and that energy that he brings to the touchline must have been a bit of a culture shock to lead. So could they have done any more? Could they have replaced Bielsa sooner? Should they have replaced Bielsa sooner? How did they get themselves into the mess they were in? Well, you could say that, obviously, about Burnley as well, though. They, they were on such a poor run at the start of the season. Why was you know why did they stick with Deitch for as long as they did if you know they were in such a poor run of form? I think Leeds' decline was such a shock, though, because it was bad. The amount of goals that they were conceding was ridiculous, and they they just didn't seem to be any sort of possibility of a of a turnaround in form. You just they looked gone, really, at a point. And we spoke about it and on the show, you know, a few a couple of months ago, Miles. I think you said you really like were worried for Leeds. Um, you know, with the way that they were playing. So I think one thing you can say for them, they have missed, you know, they've had a couple of key injuries. Um, Jack Harrison was missing for quite a while. Patrick Bamford, you know, is, is, has been injured for a long while. So No January um, signings, though. That's baffling for me. Mm. They really yeah, have didn't they? When they were shipping goals, that you, you lose that screen in front of your defence, who is easily their top quality sort of player, him and Rafinha in that sort of top bracket. That that was so difficult. So the fact that they showed the character to come through that without those injured players and that, that new manager's come in and they've managed to get themselves out of trouble, I think they deserve an immense amount of credit for the Brentford game, to be honest. They really stepped it up when they needed to. I think yeah. there'll be a few, I think there'll be a few top clubs a bit gutted because there's rumours that there were apparently there was a, a Rafinha twenty five million Release clause um, if Leeds got relegated. So. Wow. Well, we wanted Phillips pretty desperately by all accounts. If if they'd gone down, Villa were going to try and swoop in and get Phillips to link up with Gerard. But I mean, we've signed Kamara today, so I'm happy. <laughs> so yeah, the three of them obviously now been confirmed as relegated. Watford, Norwich, and now Burnley deserved this. So I think there was yeah. a few teams that were kind of for a while looked like they could be in the mix. Everton must be thanking that they themselves that they won the game previous to that because they got absolutely hammered by Arsenal, which is unreal. So yeah. They were hungry, Arsenal, sorry. Was it Arsenal they lost to? Yeah, yeah it was yeah, um, yeah. absolute drubbing, wasn't it? So yeah, Frank Lampard's very lucky there. But yeah, moving on to Arsenal, the top four and Spurs, who sealed Champions League qualification. It looked like it was going to happen anyway when they won the last game and had Norwich on the final day. And that proved to be the case. But Spurs are worthy Champions League qualifiers, aren't they? Are they probably better equipped to deal with it than, than Arsenal? 
Yeah, definitely at this stage. Well, it will depend on what happens at the, over the summer because Conte is still not really committing to the fact he'll definitely be there next season. I think he will, just out of virtue of the only job that would be available for him to walk into would be the PSG job. And I, I really don't think he'll want that, to be honest, mm. especially with what's gone on there this week. They, that's a whole different story that maybe we'll come on to later. It's just an absolute joke. Uh, but you have to say the strength that Spurs showed in that second half of the season, and particularly in the last few games, I think they, they, they've only conceded like five goals in the last 10 or 11 games or something mental. He's mm. really improved that side, plus brought in Kudazeski and Bentancur, who have been fantastic. Already had Son and Kane there, who are world-class and should be in the Champions League. So I don't think we can be too surprised that Spurs managed to nab fourth over Arsenal. But still a great season for both of them, I think, on reflection. Yeah, I think the start that Arsenal had and the way we in particular were sort of framing them to be a mid-table team, weren't we? Because that's the kind of performances they were producing. Yeah, I think they've they've actually found their identity now. I think Arteta's definitely got a squad that's his and it's working for him. It's just not to be this season. I think it is probably a season too early to get into the Champions League. So he's got another season now of transition where you'd have to say they probably should be competing this year, Arsenal, mm -hmm. for the season they should be looking at getting deep in cup competitions should definitely be looking at the Europa League and thinking we should have a crack at that you'd imagine yeah it's just gonna be hard obviously because now all of a sudden you play a lot more games and they don't have the deepest squad I do wonder whether they shot themselves I said it at the time and I think a few Arsenal fans kind of laughed it off and said no it's good for the squad but their January transfer window was awful because they let players mm. go and let players go and let players go failed to bring anyone in now i've seen a few villa fans talking about it on twitter and i genuinely think it's true if you look at how rob holding for example he had to come into that arsenal side against spurs and was shocking callum chambers has come in at villa and actually looked very reliable and strong he's yeah. a better defender than rob holding had they kept hold of him maybe things could have been slightly different. If they'd kept hold of Maitland-Niles and had a bit more cover in those sort of areas, maybe maybe that would have been the difference. But when you look at that Newcastle game the other night, I mean, we've not had a podcast since then, have we? And no. that was just... Oh, it was ridiculous. Talk about throwing it away at the last opportunity. It was, it was yeah. so, so frustrating. And if you're an Arsenal fan, you'd have been pulling your hair out watching Gimaraes, this player that they were desperately after in January go to another club and, and completely tear you apart and make your midfield yeah. very average as well, to be honest. But it was a great result on the final day for them and showed a lot of positive signs, a lot of the young players getting involved in the goals. So they'll they'll have a decent season next season. I can't see them getting into the top four now if they've got to compete in a European competition as well. And yeah. I think it does limit the kind of signings that Arteta will be able to make in the summer, the fact that they don't have that top Champions League football. And really... Mm when they need that elite level striker to see them over the line, it's going to be hard to find one now. I think with the Spurs-Arsenal situation, it's really strange to think at the first half of the season, maybe the first third, both of those teams were equally mediocre, weren't they? Yeah. We were, Arsenal struggled to pick up a win for the first few matches. Spurs looked like a completely different team to the one that started the season with uh, Nuno Espirito Santo in charge. So the changes in personnel for Spurs have really made them competitive again. And you said last week, I think, they've got a team of very, very good players, some world-class players, mm -hmm. as we've seen with Son Heung-min again and Kane in this game against Norwich, really pulling it out. But the changes they made when they needed to were crucial, really. So you've got to say to the board, 
what a great, brave decision to, first of all, put Conte in charge, who's by no means a guarantee of success. It's a bit of a gamble, but he's what that squad needed, definitely. Arguably what a team like Man United needed as well, which we've said in the past. Uh, and then also to sign the likes of Kulisevsky and Bentancur, who have really changed the shape of Tottenham's attack and made them a really exciting team to watch, is a real testament to, to the bravery of, of the board, of Conte, and the kind of changes they felt that they needed to make at a crucial stage of the season, I think, paid off. And that was the difference moves between the two. It was those January moves that Arsenal didn't make, but mm. Spurs did. And do you know what? We talked a minute ago with Burnley about how when you bring players in from another league, it takes them some time to settle. But actually, Bentancur and Kulaseski settled immediately yeah. and clearly really bought into the Spurs project. I think you noticed it with Kulaseski in particular, how much he gelled with Son and Kane as a forward three. And you saw mm. it in this game. First of all, that one goal he scored was absolutely incredible. Yeah. Such a good, his second goal was such a good finish. But also, there was a moment, I'm sure you both saw it, where he breaks through, he rounds the keeper, he's got an open goal, and he scuffs it, falls over, and the defender clears it off the line. And the commentator's going, I don't know how he's missed that. I do. I can tell you exactly how. Because he looked up and he saw Son in the middle. And that shows how much he bought, he's bought into Spurs. Because yeah. he clearly thought, I've got an open goal here, but if I pass to Son, he can get the golden boot. And that's that's a that's an interesting nature, I think. If Spurs were not three 0 up at that point, or however many it was, I'm sure yeah. their fans would have been annoyed and just thought, put it away. But I thought it was quite interesting to see that chemistry. That actually they are thinking about each other and contributing towards a team, even though he's only a loan yeah. player technically at the moment. Is there a loan to buy option for his contract? Yeah. Because I mean, what price would you put on Kulusevski now if he was back at Juve in the open market? I think it's done. I think yeah. it, if they qualify for the Champions League, there was an obligation. And I think it's 35 million. Brilliant. Which is, which is good business because the other thing is, I think he's only 22. Yeah. He's a young player. When Juve signed him from Parma, it was, it was big news, really. I've been watching the Juventus All or Nothing, actually, on Amazon, and it covers them signing Kulazeski. And they're desperately looking for attacking players to bolster the squad because it was after Higuain left. And Kulazeski was bought in because he was this prospect. And then actually they got a lot of injuries and they kind of had to throw him in and he just really hit the ground running in his first season. But for some reason or another, it, it fell off from there and he never really managed to, to show the player that he is. And I'm, I'm really happy for him that Conte's given him that platform to do that at Spurs because he does look absolutely fantastic and seems like the Premier yeah. League really suits him. Definitely. It's an exciting trio to watch, I think, with mm. those um, those front three with Kane and Son as well. And exciting for next season if they all do stick around as well, Conte included. Yeah. But Dave, do you think the, the the table doesn't lie in this situation? Did the better team qualify for the Champions League in the end? Yeah, it's been... I think one thing you can say about Spurs, they are well-equipped for the Champions League. And one of the main reasons I think you can say that is because of the pedigree that Conte holds. Um, and we've seen the way that they've set up in certain games, particularly, for an example, the, the Arsenal game um, a couple of weeks ago. I, th I thought he approached that, you know, really tactically in how he wanted to win the game, and I felt as though Arsenal approached it too naively. We've seen examples of Arsenal approaching games, um, you know, we're mentioning there the Newcastle game, was there for them to win. Um, it met, you know, same as um, the Burnley game for Newcastle. Newcastle been playing for, for no reason, really, pretty much for pride at the end of the season. And 
Arsenal just couldn't do it. And how many times have we said that over the year? They've, I just, I just sense that with the attack that Tottenham have, um, I actually fancy them to be a little bit of a dark horse next season if they can make a couple of, you know, clever acquisitions in the summer and Conte does stay there, then I think they'll they'll be a they'll be a good outside bet. I'm not saying that they can do it because we've seen them be Spurs and Spurs it up um, <laughs> over the last few years. But it it just feels different now for some reason towards this end of the season. We have seen Tottenham have these little. We obviously saw the Burnley game um, after they went and beat Man City, lost to Burnley, and we thought, you know, what's going on here? But we've seen them, especially in the big games, we've seen them compete, and they've not looked, um, they've not been overawed, I wouldn't say, by you know the these this opposition, and we've seen them, you know, take the game to teams. We've seen them compete with Liverpool and, you know, if Liverpool have won that game, they'll run that on to win the league. So I think you've got to give, give a lot of credit to, to Conte and how far they've come in such a short space of time. One caveat, though, to this idea that Spurs are set up well for Champions League success next season because they've got Conte is actually Conte's got a terrible record in the Champions League. It's, it's the one thing that he's always been criticised for, that he's never really been able to perform in that tournament. I think he's played 34 games in the Champions League. He's only won 12 of them. He's won wow. 12, won 11, lost 11. So that's not a very uh, rewarding record for a manager of his sort of calibre. At mm. some clubs, I don't think you can say it's because he's been playing for the uh, for the weaker sides at Inter, Juve, Chelsea. It's, it's not a good record. Mm. You could say something. I don't, I, don't, I, don't think, I don't think people would be expecting a lot of Spurs, though, to be honest, coming into this Champions League. I think it's pretty much a free hit for them, really. If they qualify from the group, you know, it'll, they'll take it a game at a time and see how far they can go. Mm. Um, you look at the clubs he's been at in the past, you know, Juve always expected to win. Chelsea always expected to win, you know, with their kind of sort of record they've had in the Champions League over the last few years. Mm. They are expected to be one of the favourites. No one will expect Spurs to be, you know, one of the favourites to win. So I think the pressure's off for them, really. Yeah, maybe. Well, again, it depends what moves they make in the transfer market, doesn't it? They do yeah, sign. Really. We, you know, it depends what the what their seed is because if they get seeded into, you know, they could be in a in a in a tasty group. So it'll be interesting to see how that plays out. So Spurs have to qualify as well for, for the, the Champions League group stage. Yeah, yeah. I think fourth place still has to play a, a like a qualifier to get to the group stage. So it's not done a dusted yet, but you'd imagine it's against somebody a bit weaker than themselves. So yeah, that's the Champions League places wrapped up. Obviously, Tottenham join Chelsea, Liverpool and Man City in the top four, um, which is not what we predicted at the start. Obviously, Manchester United have slipped down to sixth in the table to join Arsenal in the Europa League, but to be wearing... just. yeah, only just, yeah, only We're not because. Talk about the race for the Europa League and how West Ham <laughs> uh, did you a massive favour by uh, occupying your Conference League place. It's it was not crazy, crazy, really. Brighton. You are Brighton did us a favour. Yeah, Bright Brighton 
obviously ruined Man United's season and then saved it simultaneously somehow. Well, I was going to move on to Brighton next, um, just to wrap up, because there's a few teams that finished the league so strongly that they've risen a couple of places, and Brighton are among those. They finished ninth. Leicester finished eighth after their season, which which looked like it was going to be a lot worse than it ended up. Yeah. Uh, and obviously Newcastle climbed to 11th, which is a great comeback for them. And Palace climbed to 12th after beating Man United on the final day. Palace have had a good season too, haven't they? So yeah. a few teams there that have um, have surprised and actually finished on a real positive and probably teams that you'd expect to compete in the top half again next season. So, yeah, interesting climax. Any other teams stand out for you, Miles? Uh, Brentford, even though obviously they lost uh, to Leeds in the last game, I think you've got to say they've had an absolutely amazing first season up. and. The, the structure that that will give the club, I think bringing in Christian Eriksen, obviously we've talked about that countless times on this pod, how brilliant that was. But you've got to say that's been a, a wonderful introduction to Premier League football for them. Uh, and and Arsenal, I think, are probably one of the biggest winners because we none of us expected them to do anything. And they've ended up eight points better off than they were last season and going from eighth to fifth. So yeah. I think they're, they're probably the two standout teams in the Premier League for me this season. Dave, anything uh, from this, well, from this final running and the, the final positions of the teams where you've looked at them and gone, do you know what? They've done all right. They've surprised a few. They've surpassed the expectations. Yeah, I think a couple of teams that I've, I'm a bit worried about. Southampton, you look how close they were to relegation after, you know, their run of form all season. They've kind of been a mixed bag, really, but they were so close to relegation towards the, the end of the season. You yeah. have to put them out there as an outside bet for relegation next year. Um, for teams that impress, yeah, I think seeing Patrick Vieira come into Crystal Palace and have the impact that he's had on that team is, you know, it's been really must be really encouraging for Palace fans and to see the the players, you know, the young players that have got coming through and the likes of, you know, Eze. Um, I think it will be an an exciting season for them, and I I, I think. I think in terms of the policy, they seem to be sort of pursuing in, you know, buying young players, promising players and developing them. I think that's really good um, for, you know, English football. And hopefully we'll see that. I th- I'm, I'm looking forward to seeing who else joins, um, joins us in the Premier League out of the, in the playoff final out of um, Huddersfield and Forest. I'd like to see Forest come up. Uh, hopefully, hopefully, if Huddersfield come up, we see a different Huddersfield because the amount they gave themselves themselves in the last Premier League season was terrible. So, yeah. I'm just hoping. <laughs> Sorry, carry on. Didn't they beat Man United that season, though? <laughs> yeah, well, who doesn't these days? <laughs> <laughs> Can we just quickly go away from England before we finish? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Two things have got to be worth mentioning. AC Milan won the Scudetto. Amazing, yeah. Brilliant for them. And really funny if you're Channel Ugly who left AC Milan for <laughs> Milan this summer and then ended up on the losing side both times. Olivier Giroud scored twice last night to uh, help them win the title. And surely we've got to talk about Mbappe quickly. Yeah, wow. I mean... Oh, if the rumours are true... He's I've a sneaky them. one, isn't he, honestly? 
I read well, what, what's your is, thoughts on it then, Miles? I read that the deal is 300 million worth signing on fee, 100 million oh. a year. He'll also have a say over who the next manager is, who the next sporting director is, because they're going to get rid of Leonardo, and also on incoming and outgoing transfers. So basically, the only way to stop him from going to Real Madrid was go, you're in charge, just do whatever you want, even have an, a blank checkbook. You can pay yourself whatever you want, buy whoever you want. Don't worry about the next manager. He's whoever you want it to be as well. It's it's ridiculous. He's twenty three. Yeah, yeah. He's you know what? One of the biggest. For me, it just shows a real lack of ambition for him because surely he can't go any higher than than what he's done at PSG, apart from win the Champions League, and that is a big, big ask of PSG right now. So, Real Madrid are more likely to to scoop that trophy very soon, maybe um, if that's the case. And um, the fact that he's snubbed that chance to stay at PSG for that kind of control reportedly is, is mental isn't it but also really funny that la liga have put in a complaint about it to, to fifa saying that it, it's obviously some sort of financial doping in the game and they really think it's unfair knowing that barcelona are like a billion in debt because they've been doing exactly the same thing for years it's it, it's just ridiculous and those kind of figures being involved in football i mean you know we all feel about that we've talked about that enough times it's it's an absolute joke but yeah he said, didn't he, that he'll be supporting Real Madrid in the Champions League final. He still supports them, but he just didn't want to leave Paris because France is what made him the footballer he is and he doesn't want to have to leave France. Just tell the truth, mate. They said yeah. to me, I'd have whatever I wanted. So I just thought, sack it. Why would I not say yes to that? It's, it's ludicrous. I'm not sure there's much truth to that many controls over one football club. I hope not, anyway. That would be a terrifying contract for some young individual to have wouldn't it really it's mental it just make it even funnier when psg don't win the champions league next year isn't it oh fantastic they oh, need yeah. to get done now really don't they that's got to be the next step because if you've literally given a young player that much money and that much power you've got to find a manager that he's going to respect and listen to that's not pochettino definitely not really Zidane, isn't there apparently the, yeah there it's got a, a guaranteed the dan's going to come in and that was one of the reasons why he, he signed on so Pochettino will be gone by the end of the week, supposedly. So yeah. I imagine Zidane will be the move that they make. It would be weird if it was anyone else. So I think that we're we're gutted to see the Premier League finish. Well, I am. Yeah. Even if even if United have had a rubbish season, I'm sure you boys are the same. It's always gutting to see the Premier League finish. But this yeah, could be one of the most exciting transfer windows we've ever seen. It's been an exciting season. I mean, if you look at it impartially, which we try to do on this pod, you know, emotions get the better of us sometime. But there's been so there's been so many high points, hasn't there, for raising the bar. The quality at the top's got better. Um, the quality elsewhere has been a bit weird. I think some yeah. of the the mid table teams and even the teams fighting for Champions League and the European places have been really inconsistent. So again, who adds who to their their teams over the summer will be so fascinating, won't it? Yeah, some very vocal players about the fact that they want to be on the move and some big moves done already. We've obviously seen Haaland signed for City already. Lewandowski's still not really deciding what he's doing. He said yeah. bye to the Bayern fans. And then I've read today that he said he'll honour his contract and do one more year. So who knows what's going on there? But it's going to be exciting at least to see. Yeah, but that is the end of the 21-22 season. It's been an absolute blast. I can't wait to discuss it in more detail at some point because there's bound to be some things we've missed, some details we've not talked about in enough detail. But um, that's it for now. What's coming up next week? What are we going to talk about, you might ask? Well, there's the small matter of the Champions League final on Saturday. 
There's, of course, the playoff final in the championship on the Sunday. And there's the mighty Roma playing against Feyenoord, isn't it, in the Conference League on Wednesday. So, it's going to be a ton to talk about. It really is. Are you excited? Very. For for the Conference League, more than anything. Yeah, I don't don't know whether to watch the the Champions League final. (laughs) (laughs) I'm going to say it on the vibe. I think I said it last week. Madrid are going to win. I'm quite confident. Conference conference about um, Roma's chances as well, I'm guessing. Yep, Tammy Abraham just broke the record for the Englishman with the most goals in a Serie A season as well. Amazing for him. So, yeah, they'll, they'll win that. I'm pretty comfortable. Awesome. Well, join us next time then, next week, just to round up the final elements of this amazing, thrilling season. Guys, you're going to be there? You're going to join me next week as well? Of course. We'll be yeah. there. Wicked. Awesome. Thank you for watching again. This is the Football Diary Podcast. Please do hit like and subscribe if you want to continue seeing us venture our way through the summer transfer market, the build-up to the World Cup and everything beyond that. We'll be there. We'll be talking about it. Guys, thanks for your time. It's been a wicked season. Speak to you soon, yeah? See you later.